So Money, episode 1237, Kabir Segel, co-author of the book, Carry On, Reflections for a New Generation, Reflections and Words of Wisdom from Civil Rights Champion, the late Congressman John Lewis. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Being in his presence is very calming. It's very welcoming. He doesn't have judgment. And, uh, you know, the late, great Maya Angelou said, you know, people remember how you make them feel. And when you were in his presence, he was incredibly calming and sweet and gentle and kind. He's always been like that guiding influence. And I think he's almost like, you know, America's patron saint. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. You were just listening to an excerpt from today's interview with Kabir Segel. He's a friend and friend of the show. He's been on before. He's exceptionally talented, an author, a musician. And interesting fact, he grew up with the privilege of knowing the late Congressman John Lewis. John Lewis was a family friend as he grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. And on the anniversary, one-year anniversary of his passing, Kabir finally got the chance to publish the memoir that he was writing with John Lewis, as well as Andrew Young. That book is called Carry On, Reflections for a New Generation. The new book shares Congressman Lewis's final reflections on topics including courage, activism, and money. We will learn about the intimate conversations he had with the late congressman, how his good trouble and civil rights activism was also a fight for financial equality. Here's Kabir Segel. Kabir Segel, welcome back to So Money. It's been a minute. It's been a minute, but it's great to be with you here and now. Kabir, you are always so fascinating to, to speak with. Last you were on the show, I believe we were talking about your book, Coined, which went on to be a bestseller. You have you wear many hats. If you all are unfamiliar with Kabir, he is not just a multi, multi bestselling author. I mean, you've got like 16 books, including a children's book and a book about money. And of course, your latest we're going to talk about Carry On regarding the late Congressman John Lewis, who was a mentor to you and a friend of your family's. But you also, I believe, are a Grammy-winning musician, artist. I believe you served as well for uh, the U.S. military. What, what am I missing here? There's so many. Th- you missed that we we've been friends for for a while here. That's that's the badge of honor. <laughs> we right have. There. That's why is that not in the first line of your bio? Friends with Farnoosh. Also, <laughs> so I got to play it down a little. Bit. You don't want to make people jealous. I get it. Um, exactly. Uh, but in all all sincerity, really great to reconnect with you. How was your pandemic? The pandemic was, um, I guess, very productive in a way. It was sad. I, I left New York um, and I kind of decamped to Atlanta, where I was born and raised. And it was it's been an amazing time just to be home. You kind of realize how much you travel. Um, and so I just kind of started working on my craft, writing, producing, practicing the guitar. So it's been. Um, a very productive time. It's been a very, you know, concerning time with all the the sadness and tremendous despair out there. But I hope we're turning the corner and I hope to be able to see you in person mm-hmm. and others soon and get back on the road. 
Yeah. And in that time, I, I believe you were working uh, or close to finishing the book that you co-authored with the late Congressman John Lewis. It is a little bit over a year since his passing. And uh, I would love to spend a lot of this show talking about some of the discoveries that you made about a man that you knew for almost your entire life. But when you're co-writing a book together, that's a memoir, I'm sure uh, you learn new things. And it's always a pleasure to learn and to reflect on on the great John Lewis. And you had such a perspective. Tell our listeners how you even got to know him. I understand that he was a close friend of your father's, uh, your parents, immigrants to the United States. Tell us about how it all began. Right. Well, my father, you know, he came to the United States in 1960 and he made his way from India to Atlanta and he started working at an engineering company. And Atlanta in the 80s and 90s was uh, obviously not as vibrant as a place it was as it is today. And my dad um, became friends with a lot of these civil rights luminaries, Ambassador Andrew Young, who was the mayor to Atlanta, ambassador to the United Nations, ended up working with my father. And Andy became uh, my godfather. And I just was very blessed to have, you know, been raised in a time when a lot of these civil rights heroes were in their prime in their 40s and 50s and 60s. And they were in positions of power in Atlanta and throughout Congress. John Lewis happened to be one of them. So Congressman John Lewis, I have fond memories of him visiting um, my, my father in his office in the early 90s, the, the relationship goes back to the, I think, the late 1980s. And um, fond memories of us spending time together during the Centennial Olympic Games some 25 years ago now. And it's just been a tremendous um, ongoing conversation um, throughout the, the years. And um, it was nice to sort of occasionally check in and travel with the congressman. We went to Selma, Alabama. He held an annual pilgrimage to Selma to march over the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And so that's how the relationship um, began and I guess was nurtured over time. Um, and, you know, we weren't like extremely close. I don't want to oversell that, but we we got to be closer, obviously, um, towards the end <laughs> with, with the conversations. And and I learned so much from him um, in, in these conversations and, and what culminated in this book. Was there a moment or a piece of advice he ever gave you that uh, really made an impact? I feel like... Being in his presence was uh, inspiration enough, but were there actual moments that you both shared that you took with you? Absolutely. I mean, I remember um, sitting next to him on a bus in Birmingham, um, headed back on one of these annual, annual pilgrimages, and we were just speaking. And it was a time when I was thinking, "What should I do next? Should I?" I didn't know what to do next with my career, and he's, you know, he just said basically you got to be yourself and your own version of the best ideal version of yourself. You know, you don't want to compare yourself to other people and service can be, you don't have to run for office to have to be someone who serves. And he said, why would you even want to do that? <laughs> you know, like you have to sit in committees and listen to people talk. And so I think um, it was a really sort of reassuring message because being in his presence is very calming. It's very uh, welcoming. He doesn't have judgment. And uh, you know, the late, Great Maya Angelou said, you know, people remember how you make them feel. And when you were in his presence, he was incredibly calming and sweet and gentle and kind. And uh, I learned that. Sometimes I'm kind of <laughs> I kind of I'm kind of aggressive and let's get things done, but I learned to kind of take a minute and um and realize you're just finding your own 
battle. Everyone's fighting their own battle, but just to kind of be comfortable in your own skin. And that's something I took from conversations as a boy from him. He's always been like that guiding influence. And I think he's almost like, you know, America's patron saint. Um, John Lewis could go to any district in Congress, Republicans and Democrats and you know, African-American populations make up a strong segment of even some Republican districts. And just mm-hmm. having a picture with John Lewis could help that congressman. So his presence, he didn't have to say very much. His presence was like uh, almost like a blessing. And that's something I think we should all think about is uh, what impression, how do you make people feel when you're around them? And that's something I, I took away from him. He uh, was famous for the expression, good trouble, illustrating and and living that out truly in his activism. What did he think of that persona? Did he like the expression, good trouble? How did he like, or what did he think of the characterization of him out that was out there? Yeah. Did he see himself as a hero? (laughs) Well, it was very, it's very genuine. What you see is what you get with him. And there, there has been a rediscovery of John Lewis, I would say arguably, um, maybe even like post the Obama endorsement. Or if you recall, like he endorsed Hillary Clinton and then he switched course mm-hmm. and um, was very supportive of Obama. There was a time in the 90s, um, I remember, he, he didn't have the sort of hero-like status. I mean, he's always been, in, you know, I'm not trying to diminish him. It's just this sort of mythological John Lewis took flight, I think, in the last 15 years. So my... My when when people started seeing John Lewis, I was like, you know, our congressman. It was great to know that like people were finally discovering him. And I think mm-hmm. um, he knew, he was aware of his presence. He was aware aware of his influence. Um, he wielded it without wasting it. He wielded it for causes that um, were important to him, namely voting rights um, and and equal justice. And so he realized, I think, in his later years too, that he wanted people to know his story. And I think he wanted people to know the importance of nonviolence, whether it's you're protesting economic issues or political issues. And that's what he, one of his missions in his life was he was going to use his status, if you will, to advance the causes that were of interest to him. So mm-hmm. I think he was aware of it, but I also think he leveraged it well. And um, that's something I think that comes across in the pages of our book, Carry On. Yes, the book is called Carry On, Reflections for a New Generation. What is the ultimate legacy you believe he wanted to leave for this generation? I often wonder, can this generation live up to the work that he and and fellow civil rights activists led in the 60s? Did he leave this earth hopeful, as hopeful as he was back in, you know, the march on Washington? You know, the the time period which we were having these exchanges was in you know spring 2020 what was going on in the world it was the onset of the pandemic then the george floyd uh, mont arbery so many killings of black lives matter protests it was a you know a moment of tremendous sadness in, in our country um just with the death and the the violence and so but he said to me never lose hope you know, never lose hope. He said, people don't change, they grow. And it takes time. And he tells a story. Um, he likes to tell a story about in 1961, he was one of the first freedom fighters. And he was assaulted by a guy named Edwin Wilson, who was a former member of the KKK. And fast forward, decades later, Edwin Wilson reaches out and says, I'd like to come meet with you 
and uh, ask for forgiveness. I want to make right by my creator. And so they had a conversation and they met. And ultimately, John Lewis, of course, forgave him. And, you know, I saw that even here when I came back to Atlanta, moving back to Atlanta, the place has changed massively since when I moved. It's much more diverse. You know, this used to be New Cambridge's district. And um, it's, it's so, you know, it's hard to see the change every day. But, it, but I think he said, never lose hope, you know, staying, <laughs> stay me in, in the fight of good trouble. And, uh, you know, what good trouble is all about is like being dramatic about drawing attention to things that are unjust, unjust. He used to time the marches. He and the civil rights leaders used to time their marches so that it would make the evening news. So people, mm -hmm. so he thought as a producer, there was a, a bit of strategy <laughs> that Dr. Kinnon, Andy Young, John Lewis all thought through what issues to protest, when to protest it. And I think that is a template that young leaders today should think through. How do you dramatize what issue you're trying to magnify? Gandhi was one of his great heroes, influences in so far as how he approached this concept of good trouble and that it was very, always very peaceful. We don't always see that today and we've never, we haven't always seen that throughout history. And, and I'm not sure where I stand on it because when you think about women's rights, for example, there are many books that chronicle how the women's rights movement didn't really start to become a movement until women got loud and they displayed anger. That's not to say they got violent, but this idea, where did John Lewis sort of sit on the spectrum of peace on the one hand and sort of, you know, violence on the other? But what, what do you think he would have said about that? Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that. You're right. The In the women's rights movement, you were absolutely right. I think it was that to take the leaders here to take inspiration from the British who were being more strident in their, in their, um, Sentiments, you know, John Lewis was always has always been committed to nonviolence, but he's obviously he obviously softened um, even more um, when you think about as he, as he got older. When you think about the march in 1963 on the march on jobs and, and march on Washington for jobs and freedom, an early draft of his speech, he said, "I'm gonna we're gonna march." I'm paraphrasing. We're gonna march on Washington like Sherman, you know, the general who marched on Atlanta and burned the South. And Martin Luther King had to, and another leader, I think, um, well, I forget who, but they had to sit with John Lewis and say, look, we don't think this sounds right um, to say we're going to like, you know, be barns barnstorming through the South and burning places down. And John Lewis listened. He always listened. And then he took it out of his speech. And it was a, kind of a softer speech in terms of his commitment to nonviolence, um, not, not asking for violence. And so... That's something I know he struggled with in the early days, but it became part of his dogma in a way to stay with nonviolence. And when you say force, Gandhi was famous for talking about satyagraha, uh, which is soul force. And the uh, when you when you do things that have high moral authority, it takes on a sort of collective power. Um, now, look, I'm not naive. You look what's happening around the world, like it can be incredibly tough when you're facing, um, you know, authoritarian regimes to peacefully demonstrate. Some people don't, some regimes don't even let you protest in that way. But in the United States, we're blessed arguably with this, you know, free state that allows us to protest and shrine under constitution. And so that is something he felt so dear to, um, to speak up, to, to speak up, to stand up and, um, and 
to do it nonviolently because that's what's going to get people on your side. As soon as you start wrecking things, the wreckage takes the headlines. And so he was very conscious of headlines and trend lines. He said, if you want to change mm-hmm. the trends, you got to make sure the headlines are moving in the right direction. I want to shift gears and talk a lot about money now as John Lewis recognized the power of financial independence and the importance of taking a financial stand. And this isn't something that we often think about when we think of his legacy. We often remember him as somebody who stood up for things like racial equality and justice in this country and human rights, of course. But there was always a an unspoken sort of financial truth to everything that a lot of the things that he stood up for. And, and you wrote about this recently for an op-ed in Market Watch. And, and I'd like to talk about that because I think it's important to, to connect these dots to say that policy is, uh, is sometimes a matter of personal finance and vice versa. Although he may not have always framed it that way, there there are correlations. For example, the civil rights movement was also an economic movement, and that's something that he really did see. Can you talk about that? 100%. He knew the link between jobs and economic prosperity. In fact, one of the, I guess, the guiding philosophies of the civil rights movement was to cure the nation of the triple evils of war, the Vietnam War. And, um, you know, obviously one of them was uh, economic injustice and poverty. And Dr. King was assassinated. He was on the way to go speak at an event for the Poor People's Campaign. And they really wanted to come up with an economic manifesto. That was like the final realization. There was the political reform enshrined in the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. But they wanted to come up with a voting rights manifesto, excuse me, an economic manifesto that would have been trying, you know, more equal access for jobs and opportunity access to capital and so forth. John Lewis knew this. You know, he was, you know, congressman of the fifth, fifth district here in Atlanta, and he was always at the table trying to help, um, you know, minority owners with their businesses to get access to capital um, and support policies that help them. Um, get capital to start their companies to further their logistics and shipping. And he realized this because he didn't come from much money. He grew up, he called himself, Dr. King called him the, the boy from Troy. He grew up poor, um, essentially on a farm in Alabama, in Troy, Alabama. And he grew up listening to, to scripture and scripture, you know, we know what scripture says. There's, you know, Jesus is speak speaks so much about what to do with money. It's almost, he's like a financial advisor I think 80% of the parables <laughs> are about money or what to do with it. And so John Lewis was always saying, why are we fighting wars abroad? Why don't we build up our country here? And in terms of policy, that's kind of what we're doing now with the removal of troops from Afghanistan and with a, the with a bipartisan infrastructure bill, which I'm sure he would have um, been supportive of, or at least parts of it. And so the the other thing I also want to make clear is Dr. King spoke in financial metaphors. In his I Have a Dream speech, he talked about the American, African-Americans were given a check and it was- Bounced check. Yeah, it was a bounce check marked insufficient funds. So he spoke in this financial um, literature because in in some ways it was a way of appealing to Republicans and conservative Democrats because they understand Mm -hmm. the, the language of money. And John Lewis, we don't think of him as a economist or economic- um, policymaker in that way, but he was very much at the forefront of budget fights and making sure that 
those who were not represented were represented more fully in the, in the halls of Congress when it came to economic opportunity. He has a quote in the book where he says, accumulating money has never been a goal of mine, but when I see injustices that concern money, I stand up and speak out. Any more insights into his personal relationship with money? And so he wasn't maybe somebody who was very interested in accumulating money, but that doesn't mean he wasn't interested in maybe being financially independent or having personal wealth. Yeah, exactly. Well, he was in Congress for many years and of course, um, over 30 years. And so he was a, a beneficiary, of course, as he would say, of, of taxpayers. But um, it's something I know that the John Lewis family, and I had the great pleasure of being with them just a couple of days ago, they're very interested in setting up the John uh, Lewis, John Lillian Lewis Foundation. That is, you know, I think they're, the plans are to have a very impressive board and to support causes that would, um, you know, be benefiting initiatives like voting rights and so forth. John Lewis... Um, when it came to money, he also knew, and you know, we talk about it in the book about the importance of financial imagery. He was like, we should make sure that our money is representative of the people who shaped our country, mm-hmm. making sure Harriet Tubman's there, making sure Eleanor Roosevelt's on the money, Sojourner Truth, Martin Luther King. And, you know, we're in this, we're in 2021, and um, everyone who's on paper money looks a certain way. And it's it's almost crazy. Um, but those are the images he said we need to make sure that young people see because that's what's going to inspire change over the years to come. So in terms of his personal relationship with money, um, I saw him splurge a couple of times on ice cream and and uh, and sweets and so forth. But he always he was always uh, very conscious about he always knew what the minimum wage was. He always had a pulse of what was happening in his district. And he always realized that America would be doing a lot more in terms of investing in, in its communities. Um, and I hope that, you know, as, as the, of those of us who are interested in money and financial causes, we realize that however we shape our budgets is really representative of our, of our priorities, whether it's our personal right. priorities or national priorities, and making sure that we, we all make financial decisions every day and how we, what we determine to spend on reflects our values. And so, I think we can all take this from John Lewis and say, how would he be, what would he be spending on as a way to guide our own personal financial mm-hmm. decision-making? To me, it's also a reminder that when you're talking about money and you're, let's say me or any other person who dedicates their career to talking about financial you know, values and, and how to strategize your life uh, financially, you got to also talk about politics. And it's not about being partisan, but it's about recognizing the link between the laws that we have and the financial rights that we practice. Just a case in point, and you bring this up in your article on Market Watch, you know, uh, going back to John Lewis, he would have been very much an advocate for President Biden's infrastructure initiative, because while that on the surface is all about building roads and bridges, public transport, it is also access points for people to get to work, right? Where they may not have had that before. And so it is literally a road to money. So we got to remember these things. And uh, if he were to live another lifetime, John Lewis, if he were able to continue living uh, another 80, how, he died, he was 80. He was 80, correct. What, where do you think he, where would his priorities be into the future? Like, I think he would be on the front lines today looking at voting rights within the states uh, remember, like our country is set up on democracy, which is 
supposedly based on equality, one vote, you know, everyone's entitled to a vote or has the right to vote. Uh, capitalism is not often set up on equality. It's set up sometimes on inequality. Who can make more or the competition? So this balance between um, democracy and capitalism is sort of the bedrock of our society. And he was always fundamental about the right to vote. That was something in our book he talked about extensively. It's make sure, go out there and vote. The voting is sacred. Voting is uh, something you have to hold dear. Because if you lose that right to vote, you can't change policy. You can't change economic opportunities. Do You get stuck with abusive credit practices and you know weird consumer disclosure laws and so forth. So I think if he was alive, he would be trying to help us look at what's happening in across the, the the country, all these state legislatures and certain certain uh, uh, governors are signing bills into law, especially down here in Georgia, that are preventing access to vote. And it's it's sad, but that's what that's what his, was his life life's work. He he marched for it, he bled for it, he almost died for it. And I think he would say, "Don't give up the fight," because it's when you think when you get idle, things change, and that's when you end up with um, terrible economic policies. So I think in terms of just in terms of economic areas, I think he would be looking at public housing, making sure it's more affordable. Affordable housing is incredibly difficult and difficult with home prices surging, hard for people to get access to, um, you know, low interest loans. Uh, if you don't have, then there's millions of people and, you know, there's millions of people without credit scores or unbanked. You'd be focused on the underbanked population so I think we need more John Lewis's, but that's one of the reasons I hope mm -hmm. the book inspires people to take on the mantle and fight for causes that he felt dear. Yes, the racial wealth gap is definitely an area that I find is a total like blank canvas in terms of what innovators and activists can create in this space to to eradicate the wealth gap, uh, you know, whether it's technology or programming or laws, there's so much to be done on that front. The book again is called Carry On Reflections for a New Generation. Kabir, what's next for you? You've done everything. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we can find something together Take, to collaborate on. Um, I, you know, we've always said so. <laughs> we can, we can. I got. I, I don't play any instruments, so I'm not sure I can join a band with you, but... Maybe there's something we can sample else. You in a, in a, um, sample your podcast in some, <laughs> in some music production. Maybe that's something. Hey, the first podcast musical <laughs> or musical podcast. Yeah, I don't know. we got something. No, it's been great. I've always enjoyed your show and you're such a, what you're doing is like just good and healthy for really our nation and the world. So thanks so much for doing what you do. Aww. Thanks, Kabir. And by the way, I listened, I'm, I'm currently listening to the audio version of this book, narrated by the great Don Cheadle, who's one of my favorite actors. So it's a real treat and pleasure to be able to learn about John Lewis, but also get to listen to <laughs> John Cheadle uh, narrate. It's pretty cool. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you to Kabir for joining us and sharing those memories of the late congressman and civil rights legend, John Lewis. The book is called Carry On, Reflections for a New Generation. Coming up on Wednesday's show, our friend Ramit Sethi is back on So Money, this time to share details from his new podcast called I Will Teach You To Be Rich, which unleashes 
intimate conversations that couples are having about money. You don't want to miss this. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And I hope your day is so money. Money.